We are glad you have tuned in to dive into God's Word this morning. With us at FX Church, we're starting a new series, and uh, it's going to be in the book of 1 John. This is the Apostle John writing. He wrote some other books as well, including Revelation and the Gospel of John. Now, imagine for a second you're living in a time of uncertainty. There's limited access to trustworthy information. Few people are truly seeking God and His Word for answers. The church is being deceived, and you don't know who or what to believe. Does this sound familiar to today? That's exactly the context in which John writes this letter to the church of his day. You see, God has to write this, God has John write this letter so that we can know God's truths, so that we can show love for God's commands and grow in God's love, so that our joy may be complete. You see, decision making is all about so that. Who do you allow to convince you of the so that? They give you a story and then they say, well, well, so that this will happen. What do you do to convince others of your so that when you want to do something? And what process do you use to arrive at a decision so that you can move forward? You see, that's exactly what John is trying to get the church of his day to see. Now, as we dive into to chapter one today of first John, the, 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 the themes we're going to look at is, is fellowship and joy complete. But he says, so that we might have fellowship and so that our joy may be complete. You see, it's hard to not have fellowship like we're used to having it. It affects our joy. I wish I could be with you this morning uh, on a Sunday morning. I wish we could interact with one another. But right now, we're trying to be wise in how we handle this. And it's hard. And we don't know how to have fellowship maybe in this context like we want it. And it does affect our our joy, our emotion. You see, one of our problems is not understanding what true fellowship really is. You see, true fellowship and true joy are gifts of God that we have to fight to maintain. They're not circumstantial. They're who God is when he decides to, to place his Holy Spirit in our lives because of the decision that we've made to believe him and believe that Jesus is the Savior of the world. You see, we're seeing where the choices of our fellowship and joy really lie in this time. It, it exposes us because we run to those things and those relationships that, that we think we need, and we can't just be still before God and we really find out where our joy really is. Is it with him or is it with other people? See, we like to blame others about our fellowship and joy problems. But what about our part? What about our part in why our fellowship and our joy are not fully in God? And then because they're fully in him, I can extend fellowship and joy to others. Let's begin reading from 1 John chapter 1. It says this, what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we've observed and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. You see, you've got to start from the beginning. See, what was from the beginning? You know, our problem is we settle. We don't go back far enough and we don't go forward long enough. We just kind of want to settle for temporary relationships and temporary happiness, not true fellowship and true joy. You see, because if we don't go back 
far enough and we don't understand where we're headed, then we don't know how to determine whose word to trust for our lives. You know, it's not, it just becomes the life we want, not the life that maybe is true, that's been revealed from God. You see, God asked John to write an earlier book that gives us great insight into what John is saying in this first chapter of his letter to the churches. This is what he said in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, starting in verse 1. He says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through Him, and apart from Him, not one thing was created that has been created. Life was in Him, and that life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness, yet the darkness did not overcome it. You see, the word here that John is writing about in his gospel is Jesus. That Jesus was there in the beginning. Jesus was the word of God. It's the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. His role was to be sure that that the, the beauty of who God was and his character was fully revealed to mankind and through mankind. That's why he became God himself, the God-man. And so it's beautiful that John reminds us that it, you got to think about beginning things. He also says here that we live in a dominion of darkness. We think that by admitting this, it's like somehow negative, like we're giving up on the world. It, it's not. We live in a dark place. The problem is we have a false premise because we don't go back far enough and don't understand where we're headed, that the world is basically a good place. That's just wrong. And when you start with a bad premise and have no foundation for relationships and happiness, fellowship and joy, then what happens is that it gets all messed up. The Bible says, what can light and darkness have in common? 2 Corinthians 6.14, do not be mismatched with unbelievers. For what partnership is there between righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship does light have with darkness? We have to have our fellowship ordered properly. Our joy will not be complete otherwise. You see, stuff multiplies in the darkness. Mold, bugs, critters, wickedness. You know, it's amazing right now we're going through this epidemic this coronavirus, and I would encourage you to be praying for people who are going through dark times. Would you pray that God would reveal his light? Would you be the light to people so that they can see who he is? And what's amazing to me is that new technology in the last few years is recognizing the power of UV light. There's actually a company that makes UV light robots that go through spaces and they put this UV light into the room, and it burns all the microorganisms. Now, humans can't be in that room. It's very dangerous for human beings or any living thing to be in those intense light rooms. But it's amazing that we're recognizing what God says, that light, true, pure light, and the power of it, like a laser, like UV darkness, the things of darkness, the curse, the sin, the sickness, can't exist. It it just is eradicated. And that's what John was was writing here. And he says that that all things were created through Jesus. That that when he says what was from the beginning, we have to remember that the entire universe, that, that Jesus was a part of that. He was creating him. Not one thing was created that wasn't created by him. 
And he's trying to show his light and his, the, the view of the Godhead to all of human, humanity. In Colossians 1, Paul's writing a letter to a church, the church of Colossia. And he says this starting in verse 13. This is one of my favorite verses. It was one of those verses that really stuck with me as a young believer in college. And it says this, and starting in Colossians 1, 13. For he, Jesus, has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible or invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. You know, this is an incredible passage. It's one that I've just never been able to get out of in my life. It stuck with me for so long. This passage talks about the fact that Jesus is the one who is the image of the invisible God. He he is the visible image. When when God was walking in the garden with Adam and Eve, scholars believe that that it was Jesus himself, the, the image of God created. I know that it takes faith to believe that. But you know what? It takes faith to believe anything because we're not sure of anything. Don't believe me? Look, the only reason that things hold together, this passage says, is because God holds it together. You see, God doesn't have to send a mess on the earth. He doesn't have to like send his judgment. He just has to stop cleaning up and keeping things in order. I mean, let's be honest. You guys are in quarantine. Look at our homes right now. If you just stopped cleaning up and keeping things in order, they wouldn't naturally move towards order and perfection and everybody getting along and everybody being happy. They would naturally move towards chaos. See, so so it's not that God has to send his hand down and, and do things. He's trying to reveal himself But when we won't listen, all he has to do is take his hands off and we realize how in trouble we are. You see, and the crazy part is, is even matter, the atom itself explains this. You see, all things hold together, even matter, because of Christ. See, we still can't explain the simplest form of matter. In the nuclei of atoms, which are the building blocks of matter, scientists can't figure out quite how it works. They've theorized things like quarks and quantum theory. But when they did that, they realized that quantum mechanics and Einstein's general relativity about gravity simply, they they can't uh, be constant with each other. See, when that happened, they had to decide, now what? So what? And that's where the idea of string theory or, or string, super string modeling came from. See, we don't even fully understand the basic foundation of how we hold together. And here's the crazy part. Even if all those things I just said are true, and they have figured it out, quarks and quantum theory and quantum mechanics and, and string theory, the thing is, is that the more scientists dig deeper, they realize that the world that they thought existed just keeps getting bigger and bigger. See, and that's God. God is constantly revealing how big we are and how, or how big he is and how small we really are. But here's the great part. 
He says, but I still want to have fellowship with matter. I still want a fellowship with you. I want to know you. And matter every day, we have to fellowship with matter. We have to find joy in the day, regardless of the circumstances of what matter does around us. Or we just give up and we just say, forget it. And then we just kind of exist and hope for the best and live for maybe a few relationships and just some temporary happiness. And man, that just leads to death. You see, we can't even explain these simple things about fellowship, much less fellowship among people that are made up of many atoms and lots of matter. But, you know, there are consequences to not doing the things that we know to do. And that's what John writes here. There are problems with ignoring physical laws and destroying physical matter. That's where we get the nuclear bomb from. Well, there are also spiritual laws. And if we're not careful, we can destroy lives, our own and others. And so we have to figure out who we're going to trust in. We have to say, when when John writes this in 1 John, what we have heard and seen and observed and what we've been concerned about, we we have to decide if what he's saying is really true, if he's a true eyewitness. And then he says, concerning the word of life, that's Jesus who is life. What do you remember? You know, normally the, the more senses that we get involved, the better the memory. The more repetition, the better the memory. And John says here what we've heard, what we've seen, what we've observed, what we've touched. He involves all the senses to say God is involved in everything. He wants all of us to have fellowship so that our joy might be complete. Have you been willing to ever get that close to God like John describes here in the first verse? Or do you tend to try to keep your distance? You see, keeping your distance from God, but still wanting him to be God and be present is called deism. It's not Christianity. You see, God wants us to be close, but we recognize if we get too close, we're in trouble because he's a holy and righteous God. And intuitively, we we know we don't measure up. You see, it's crazy to me that John writes and he says he's writing as an eyewitness. He's writing and saying, look, I'm writing this to you. These letters were not in person. We can't meet in person right now. We're having to meet through paper and email and text and video and all these other ways. That's no different than why we have the Bible written. The Bible was written so that it would be passed down so that we would know that that we weren't going to always be together, but we could know God's word and know that he would never leave us or forsake us if we know him. You see, that's the beauty of this book is that we're living in a time not unlike 1 John. When 1 John wrote this, when I'm preaching to you, it's because, man, I just want you to know the fellowship you can have right now with the God of the universe, with his church, even though we're not gathered, and the joy that can come from that. You see, an eyewitness account, we have to decide if John's an eyewitness here, can he be trusted? Just because someone saw something doesn't mean that it wasn't manipulated for them to see it. I watched the newest Spider-Man movie uh, this week, and his nemesis in that movie is Mysterio. And Mysterio is a special effects guy, and he, he creates special effects. That it's not real. He just knows how to manipulate technology and environments to try to convince people of the truth he wants them to see. There's no better example of whether we can trust an eyewitness or not than when we look at 
what caused this from the beginning. The problem that we have, how it was caused from the beginning, was from a, a Mysterio character. It's from Satan himself, the serpent. In chapter 3 of Genesis, verse 6, it says this, Then the woman saw that the tree, this was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that God said it was the only law he gave them, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. He said, do not eat from this tree. Everything else you can have, everything else is yours. But it was that one thing they couldn't have that affected their fellowship and their joy. That one thing they thought they should be able to have. And Satan exploited that. And he does the same thing in our lives. So the woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at, and that it was desirable to obtain wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it and also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. By the way, he should have stopped her. He knew it was his job to protect and obey God. And instead he watched Eve eat it to see if she would die to see if he could eat it. And see, this is how we make decisions today. We make decisions today by looking around and saying, well, if it worked for them, then it worked for me. We don't ask God. We don't go back to the beginning and look at what was seen and heard and taught about who God was and how he revealed himself. We just do what works, and it's killing us. In verse 8 of Genesis 3, it says, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze, and they hid themselves from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Fellowship was broken. Joy was gone. Now they had fear because they recognized what they had done. They recognized that they had been duped and deceived by the, by the serpent. You see, there, there's a progression that, that we constantly do. We, we want to have this litmus test today. We, we have to ask, who really has the words of life? Adam and Eve believed that this serpent, this Satan, had the words of life. They believed his words when, when he said that, that, that God... Uh, was holding out on them, that he wasn't to be trusted, that God was a glory hound and all these lies that, that Satan manipulated so that he could get them to do what he wanted to do and break the fellowship and the joy that they had. It's the same for us today. That, that anything on this side of eternity that we allow to manipulate us, to take us away from the fellowship that we have with God, and the joy that we find in him kills us. It's just awful. You know, John later says it this way. In 1 John 2, uh, verse 16, we'll cover that in a couple of weeks. Um, but in 1 John 2, 16, he says this, For everything that belongs to the world, so that's everything that's worldly, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of one's lifestyle is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world with its lust is passing away, but the one who does God's will remains forever. This is just like Genesis. This is how we get trapped. It, you know, the, the lust of the flesh, well, if it feels good. The lust of the eyes, well, if it looks good. And the pride of one's life, and it makes me feel good about myself and my choices, well, then it must be godly. That actually is the definition of how idols are created. We want to create something that feels good, looks good, and makes me feel good, and, and, and makes my choices right. And so we create an idol to manipulate to get what we want. Listen, the God of the Bible will not be manipulated. John knew this. John had lived his life for many decades knowing that God will not be manipulated, 
but it's not about manipulation. God wants love. He wants us to love him and us to love, uh, he wants to love us and he wants us to love others. So, so how can we trust this eyewitness, John? Did he do God's will? I mean, had he done it before? Has he done it long term? Listen, that's the thing we have to ask. When people come out and say, I have a word from God, a new word, here's what I think, and, and, and they throw these things out, we have to decide, is it trustworthy? Well, the first test is, does it go against God's word in any way? And when you read 1 John, you don't find him going against any of God's Old Testament. You don't find him going against anything about the character of God, but instead building it up and making it look even greater, making God himself look greater. You know, John himself left his business. Many of you may not be in business right now. You may have lost your job. John purposely left his job as a fisherman with his brother, James. They were called the Sons of Thunder. That was their nicknames. He laid that down to become a follower of Jesus. He was the only disciple who was at the foot of the cross with Jesus, along with Jesus's mom, Mary, and one other person. Only John, all the other disciples fled, and this man continued to believe that Jesus was the Messiah. He would not leave him. If anyone understands fellowship, it's John. He was was called the disciple in whom Jesus loved. Like, this is John. And not only that, so it wasn't just the circumstances of the past, but what we know is, is his future, that John was the only disciple to die of old age. And trust me, he probably wanted to die because he was boiled in oil and exiled on an island. They couldn't kill him when they boiled him, so they exiled him to an island of criminals and sick people. You know, right now, people feel like exiles. It's a lonely place when you get this virus. People can't visit you. You're quarantined. You feel like you're on an island. And it was on that island that John the Apostle got the revelation, the book of Revelation, and wrote it down for us to have, to show us the beauty of heaven and the hope of a future that we could never have without Jesus coming and giving it to us and coming back again. Man, if anybody has the credibility of the way they surrendered their life, lived their life, didn't cling to this life, didn't have a bunch of things in this life, but loved others, served others, and were willing to pay the ultimate price for their beliefs, not for their benefit, but for God's benefit, it was John. So he has some trustworthy words. And he goes on to say this in verse 2. He says that life was revealed, and we have seen it, and we testify and declare to you the eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us. See, the original plan was to create build it, beings in whom God could reveal himself and they could choose or not choose to love and reveal God through their eternal life that they had. And Adam and Eve chose not to. And when that happened, when you read Genesis and the account there, death entered in for the first time. That God couldn't allow sin to go on forever. And so they were banished from the garden, from the tree of life. And God said, I will provide a way of life. I will provide it. I will declare to you, I will bring the eternal life you long for, but it's going to take a sacrifice. It's going to take me dying for you because there's no way you can undo what you've done. And see, Jesus didn't come to undo what was done. Jesus came to pay the price for what was done. See, he doesn't let anybody slide. Jesus pays the price, the life and death price that's owed, 
and says to us, if you'll believe in me, if you'll lay down your life to say that it's no longer your life, but it's mine, then I will give you eternal life. See, that's the beauty, the beauty of our gospel, the beauty of our message. So so what do we do with what's been revealed? You see, Jesus revealed himself as the Messiah. The problem was people didn't want what he revealed. They didn't like his version of being the Messiah. You see, eternal life forever, fellowship, and complete joy is not based on earthly circumstances, but on God's plan and character from the beginning all the way into the end. See, our problem is we don't want the consistent old revealed messages. We want a new one that feeds our lust and pride. For something to be revealed means that it's always been there, but now it's seen. And see, we don't want something that's always been there, the, the old facts. We want something new and exciting and, uh, and, and that gets us really thinking. And listen, God reveals things about himself all the time, but none of it's new. God's always been the same forever, today, and always. And so when you have a revelation that goes against God and his word, then that's not life. That's bringing death again because Satan had a revelation that went against God's word. And so John is clear here in verse 2 that he's testifying and declares to you the eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us. You see, here's what 2 Timothy 4 verse 1 says. 2 Timothy 4 verse 1, Paul's writing to this young Timothy. He's preparing him to take over the churches that Paul's planted and to lead them. And it says this, I solemnly charge you before God and Christ Jesus, who is going to judge the living and the dead. There's that life. And because of him appearing and his kingdom, proclaim the message. The message of what? Well, it's the message of eternal life that's through Jesus, that someone has to pay the price for our sin. And he was resurrected to prove that he was God. That's the message. And then he says in this, persist in it whether convenient or not, rebuke, correct, and encourage with great patience and teaching. For the time will come where they will not tolerate sound doctrine. In other words, what's been revealed. But according to their own desires, will multiply teachers for themselves because they have an itch to hear something new. They will turn away from hearing the truth and will turn aside to myths. See, though. We live in a time where everyone wants to turn away from revealed sound teaching and run off to myths and speculations. It's why we have problems making any decisions in our culture is because everybody's using charts and graphs and speculations instead of really looking and praying and seeking God's face. Is it wrong to to try to make predictions? No, not necessarily. But we don't talk about the real costs of things. We just want to convince people of our viewpoint instead of truly surrendering to God and crying out to Him. You see, we love myths and speculations because they really require nothing from us and require for us to ask nothing from others. John says he's writing so that we'll have a different message that does require something of us and does require us to ask something of other people. See, that's a whole different message. It's not a myth. It's the truth. And again, Timothy, Paul warns Timothy, they're going to be teachers that multiply this kind of mentality. And you're going to have to rebuke and correct and encourage. You're going to have to be patient. You're going to have to get through this. And they're going to be all about their own desires. And they're going to get teachers that that say what they want them to hear. Listen, I want you to hear what God says. 
And, and if I'm off, I would encourage you to, to challenge me. But this is God's word we're reading here that he gave through John. In verse 3 of 1 John, it says this, What we have seen and heard, we also declare to you. So that, so that you may have fellowship along with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things so that, so that our joy may be complete. I love this. John says, we have seen what we've seen and heard. We're declaring to you. We're not making this up. We're not adding anything to it. We're not exaggerating. This is the truth. And either it's real or it's not. And there's no middle ground. You can't just kind of like Jesus. Either he is the son of God and, and what he said was true and what was written about him was true or he's not. And to be in the middle of that is obviously idolatry and selfishness. You see, he says, so that you may have fellowship. Listen, there is no way to have fellowship with God unless he gives it to us. Unless he extends, as we read about in Esther in our last series, extends his scepter and gives us mercy and grace, we can't have fellowship. And isn't it great that that fellowship came through the person of Jesus Christ? You see, the fellowship is with the Father and with his son, Jesus Christ. The reason we can have fellowship with God and the reason that believers can have fellowship with one another is because we believe the same things about who God is and his truth. You see, that's why John's writing. He's saying, look, this is our job. You want to know why I don't often share the truth about God? Because I don't want to ruin fellowship and joy that I've created. That's my reason. I don't want to share the truth because I know that it'll ruin the fellowship and joy that I've created for myself. Either by me not dealing with myself or, or not willing to tell others the truth about me. See, I want to I want to play this middle ground instead of saying, no, I just want to be right with God. I want to have fellowship with him. And I want to be patient as I help people see how great he is. And I'm not going to let things slide because I want to be truthful. It doesn't mean we don't have mercy or grace, but we've got to have justice and truth as well. You see, fellowship, the Greek word is koinonia. And what it means is partaker or partner or sharer. That's what the word means. Koinonia, fellowship, means partner. If there's anything we can't that we can't stand, it's being told who we can partner with or not partner with in our culture. See, we want to have relationships with whoever we say and whenever we say on our terms with no one telling or challenging us on how they should be done. And the entire scripture is literally a book written to tell people how relationships should be done how a relationship with God should be done and how a relationship with believers should be done and how a relationship with unbelievers should be done so that we might know how to have a relationship with God, how to have a relationship with other believers so that we might know how to have a relationship with lost people. And John's book really dives into this that we'll see later. You see, if, if our fellowship and relationships aren't focused on God and how he says they should be, our joy is going to be a mess. We're not going to find happiness and joy. We're going to always be trying to get one more thing, one more relationship. In Acts 2, the first use of the word koinonia appears in the New Testament. It's in Acts 2, 42. It says this, And they, 
devoted themselves, they, the believers, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, that's the koinonia, to the breaking of bread and to the prayers. Then fear came over everyone and many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. Now all the believers were together and they held all things in common. They sold their possessions and property and distributed proceeds to all as anyone had a need. Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple complex and broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with joyful and humble attitudes. I don't know how you're doing right now if there's a joyful and humble attitude about what's being fixed in your home. I don't know. There is currently in our house, so praise the Lord. And then he goes on and he says... You're going to have this joyful and humble attitude, praising God and having favor with all the people. And every day, the Lord added to their number those who are being saved. Listen, true koinonia, true fellowship and true joy in Christ draws people to the body of Christ. You see, this is a real challenge to us. They weren't selling possessions to see what they could get and the, and the relationships they could manipulate. They were selling everything because they truly believed Jesus was coming back. They truly believed that, that, that they had to take care of, of what was going on around them. They, and it wasn't believers expecting other people to sell things for them. It was people selling and giving and saying, I have no expectations of receiving. And Jesus talks about that. You see, the challenge to modern fellowship is, is in the one another. You see, the scripture is clear that there's a different way to treat believers than there are unbelievers. And that if we begin to move the bar and begin to be unequally yoked with unbelievers, it's going to be costly. And see, the one another is important because if our relationships in the world look same as our relationship in the church, then why do I need a church? Why do I need God's people? If you're not going to tell me the truth about who Jesus is and challenge me to love him and embrace him and surrender to him, and we can just hang out, then I don't need God. I don't need the church. It must not be that important. See, that's the reason I struggle sometimes in my flesh to just want to tell people the truth because I know it's going to be costly, but we have to. You see, we can't be friends with the world without being an enemy of God, Scripture says. Does that mean we're not friendly? Does that mean we don't have relationships with lost people? Absolutely not. It just means when it comes to koinonia and fellowship, who do we run to? Do we, do we run back to the beginning and do we look forward to the end or do we kind of just get comfortable where we are and we really don't do the work to really fellowship and find joy, complete joy in who God is and in his church family? You see, when we ask people to join, um, it's not so that they can give. It's not just so they can get. We ask people to join the church because we want them to experience God, God himself. In Jesus, we already have everything, but, but he asks us to then share that with one another to lead people to recognize that in Jesus, we have everything. You know, even when we add staff, our staff that we've brought on over the years, the expectation is you're going to work another job probably. You're going to have to do something else to serve. It, it's not a free ride. I'm not judging churches that don't do that. 
I'm just saying that in our church, when we look at this Acts 2 passage, these are things that we try to really break down and ask some of these questions. We've seen people give people cars, give people large sums of money to provide needs, to to sit with people when they're sick. These are the things that we're supposed to be doing. And we've seen people confront people when they're not right with God and seen that fellowship be broken because they wouldn't change. It wouldn't be challenged. In 2 Corinthians 9, 12, Paul says it this way, for the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but also overflowing in many acts of thanksgiving to God. They will glorify God for your obedience to the confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing. The word there for sharing is in koinonia. That's the word. With them and with others through the proof provided by this service. And they will have deep affection for you in their prayers on your behalf because of the surpassing grace of God in you. It says here that the reason when we come to know Christ that he gives us a ministry and a service and that we give gifts, financial gifts, and other gifts to people is so that God can receive the praise and thanks and so that there'll be a deep affection for one another because that's what heaven's going to be like. He says, that's the goal, he says to this Corinthian church. In Philippians 3, 7, Paul says this about koinonia. He points a little bit. He doesn't use the word here, but he points to this. He says, but everything that was a gain to me, I have considered to be loss because of Christ. More than that, I also consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Because of him, I've suffered the loss of all things and consider them filth so that I might gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own, that's a pride, from the law, but a righteousness that is through faith in Jesus. The righteousness from God based on faith. My goal is to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship. I said he didn't use the word he did here. My bad. He says is to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship, the koinonia of his sufferings. Being conformed to his death, assuming that I will somehow reach the resurrection from among the dead. You know, we're getting ready to celebrate the death, burial, resurrection, and the ascension and the coming of the Holy Spirit of God. It's Passover and Shabbat in the Old Testament. The beginning festivals were Passover and Shabbat. Now we call it uh, something else, but that's what it is. And he says, Paul says, my goal is to know him, the power of his resurrection, to know that nothing can keep me down, that I will be resurrected and be with him in fellowship and enjoy one day. And I want to fellowship in Jesus's sufferings. I want to have koinonia in the sufferings of Christ. Listen, we're going through a time right now where the church is suffering with people. We're getting this disease too. It's bad. We're having to shut down our businesses just as much as other people are shutting down their businesses. The question is, do we still find fellowship and joy in the midst of it, recognizing that we're getting the opportunity to fellowship in his sufferings. That we're getting the opportunity to be conformed to his death. We get to die to ourselves and our selfishness and our wants, and we get to really see what life can really be about and should be about. And we assume that 
if we believe this, if we by faith believe in Christ's righteousness, that we're not righteous because of what we've done, but we're righteous because of what he's done and that breaks us and we cry out to him and we're grateful and we have joy, it says that we'll, we can assume that we're going to be resurrected. We're going to have a new life in him. In 2 Peter 3, it says this, First, be aware of this. Scoffers will come in the last days to scoff, living according to their own desires, saying, where is the promise of his coming? See, there are people today, where's Jesus in this? Where's God? Remember what I said in the beginning of this. God doesn't have to intervene to make things worse. Things are already terrible. All God has to do is choose not to intervene, to take his hand off, to say, you know what? I got to let this run its course. If God does that, we're in trouble because this world is a place that, that doesn't promise anything but death. We are promised one thing in life, and that's death. And he says here, the promise of his coming. Look, Jesus is going to come back. I don't know if it's going to be soon. I don't know if this is, you know, going to lead to other things or if this is just going to be a blip on the map of humanity that we deal with and move on. All through history, people have said, oh, this is a sign that Jesus, no, maybe, maybe not. doesn't matter because my goal is to fellowship with him and have joy in whatever circumstances I find myself in. And so he goes on to say in 2 Peter 3, 4, ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they have been since the beginning of creation. There it is again, the beginning. They willfully ignore this. Long ago, the heavens and the earth were brought about from water and through water by the word of God. Isn't it interesting? Scientists believe that water's the building block to all of creation. Anyway, I mean, this is a guy writing that doesn't understand science, doesn't understand what we know today, and he gets it right. And then he says in verse 6, 2 Peter 3, 6, through these waters, the world at that time perished when it was flooded, talking about Noah. But the same, by the same word, the present heavens and earth are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. Listen, if the world's a great place and, and it's all just going to work out and be wonderful, then why is God storing up fire? Look, fire purifies. It destroys. It, 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 like lava, it destroys everything. And again, all God has to do, he doesn't have to bring fire. All he has to do is open up the fires of the earth from the mantle to come out and annihilate the earth. It's all revealed. It's already there. And, and so I would just encourage you that these desires that we have, these scoffers that come, Man, we need to be confident in our fellowship with God that we know him. And if we don't know him, we've got to deal with that because there's not going to be joy, a lot of joy right now, unless it's found in him. It goes on and says, if, you know, if ungodly men will be destroyed, you know, the godly won't. We, we can be confident in that. In 1 John, as we wrap up, in verse 4, it says, we are writing these things so that your joy may be complete. What these things are you reading, watching, and listening to right now? Why? Is it helping your fellowship? Is it helping your joy? Is it helping you to know how to pray and the truth? Who are you choosing to partner with and find joy in right now? Is what you're taking in trustworthy? Is the full counsel of God's words or is it just the parts you want to hear? You see, when I have a joy output problem, it's almost always an input problem from me. 
I'm finding my joy in Jesus as revealed in his word. And if I'm doing that, then my fellowship with him and with others, regardless of circumstances, can be one of joy. Are we captivated by what we've seen and heard, or do we look to ignore and just explain it away? Are we captivated like John was at this fellowship that God's offering to us, this relationship that he offers? Are we captivated by that? Do we, do we have a joy to understand what the world doesn't understand? And does that pour out of us? Like John writes to us to say, I'm, I want you to know this. I'm declaring this to you so that you might have what I've got. You see, true fellowship and joy, complete joy, is not my will but it's God's will be done. It's what Jesus prayed in Gethsemane. If you do not know God's book, the scriptures, then you don't know the will of God. It will take working to know it because there's a world enemy fighting us, twisting it so that we don't hear clearly from him. You see, our enemy is the father of lies. And the second he gets us caught in a lie, he then is called the accuser and he accuses us before God. And you know what? We stand before God judged unless we surrender. You see, this is what's great. God uses John to call us to fellowship with him and experience the resulting complete joy offered in Jesus. And John spends the rest of his book saying, Everything he says, so that, so that our joy may be complete. I pray that as we go through this study, you would see more of God than you've ever seen, that you would have fellowship with him. You would begin to reach out in fellowship to others and that you would have a joy that's just different. It's not circumstantial. It's it's truly found in who God is. And I would encourage you, if you don't know Jesus Christ, if you have never surrendered your life to him, if you're hearing this message and it's being revealed to you for the first time, that from the beginning of creation, this is the truth, that there is a Messiah, there is a Savior, and his name is Jesus, and that we deserve to die for our sins, but Jesus paid the price so that we might have fellowship again and might have joy. He offers that to you today. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for this message. I pray that anyone hearing this, if they don't know you, if they've never surrendered their life to you, that today would be the day. They would decide they were going to stop fellowshipping with the things of this world and start fellowshipping with you and with your people. Father, I thank you for the opportunity to preach your word, to speak your word this morning. Lord, I thank you that you change us. I pray for those believers that are out there. Lord, if anyone out there is struggling in fellowship and in joy, would you show them? Would they read 1 John and would they find confidence in it to know that you are the God who forgives and you are the God who loves them? You are the God who had a plan all along from the beginning and has a plan to the end. And would we obey you? Would we cling to you in it so that our fellowship and our joy may be complete? We thank you. We praise you. Amen. Have a great week. If there's any way we can reach out to you to to help you, if there are needs you know of that we as a church can meet, would you contact us, please? Go to our webpage, make a phone call, send us a text. All of our information is available at fxchurch.com slash 411. You'll find resources there during this pandemic, and you'll be able to to contact us so that we, we can help. Listen. 
reach out. Reach out. And if it's to tell us how much joy you have, man, I'd love to hear that story too. It doesn't have to be a need. Just tell me what God's doing in your life right now. We thank you. Have a great day.